This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. We have today another installment in our SCOTUS Spotlight series, talking to lawyers who argue regularly before the Supreme Court about oral advocacy. And today we're very fortunate to have Dan Geiser, who's the head of the Supreme Court practice at Haynes and Boone. Dan, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a thrill to be here. So let's start, uh, you know, so kind of at the 35,000 foot level. How is your approach to arguing at the Supreme Court different from arguing in the courts of appeals, which is something you also do often? Yeah, you know, I, you know some things about it are, are very similar and uh, you know, other things are, are very different. Um, at the circuit level, you know, a panel could be hearing, you know, 15, 20, 25 cases uh, in a sitting. Uh, and when you're arguing, you might be the fourth or fifth case heard that day. Uh, so I look at it a little more as you might have to kind of remind the panel what your case is. And so they kind of remember like, oh, it's that one with those issues. And so uh, I find both in framing the intros and kind of framing just the general you know, arguments you'll use, it's a little bit to kind of prompt questions about the major issues and sort of run through the key points uh, in a way that you sort of don't expect at the Supreme Court, where of course, you know, you might be the only case argued that day or one of two cases, you know, the court is ready. Uh, they don't need any reminders about what the case is about. They, they're already set to jump into the hardest parts of the case. And so, you know, the prep is a lot more thinking about kind of what are my top line points, you know, the hardest and most important questions, as opposed to kind of potentially reminding the panel a little bit about why you're there, which isn't to say that the, the circuit level judges aren't working, you know, incredibly hard. They absolutely are. It just, it's hard when you have five difficult cases in a single day, sometimes to, to keep them straight, especially when they have four or five cases, you know, every other day that week. You know, I guess the, the only other difference is kind of just thinking about the, the ultimate goal of what you're trying to do. You're always trying to win. I mean, that, that's what you're trying to do at the Supreme Court or at the circuit level. But at the circuit level, it can be a little more about winning that case. Uh, you can win narrowly. You can win on alternative grounds. So you kind of are thinking of lots of different paths to victory. In the Supreme Court, um, you know, you're usually looking to win on the question presented. Uh, it's, it's possible sometimes to win other ways, but generally you have to convince the court that you're right on that legal question or your client's going to lose. Uh, and so you, it's a little more focused on the, the precise legal issue that the court granted review to decide. And when you're thinking about how to argue it and, and then you're there in the moment, has your approach changed either you know, as you do this more often or because of the makeup of the court having changed? You know, it's, it's funny. It's, my approach hasn't changed too much. Uh, I think it's changed a, a little bit in a substantive way and maybe a little bit in a mechanical way. Um, you know, for, for the substance, I, I think I have a, a greater appreciation now for the court's sort of overall perspective. You know, the, the court is governing, you know, they are the head of one of the three branches of government, you know, they know that they know these decisions are going to have a national impact, it's going to have a national reach. And, you know, it doesn't mean that the court isn't looking, you know, at the text and that they're not bound by legal principles. Um, but I think it does mean that the court um, and the justices are thinking carefully about how legal rule uh, will impact the lower courts and society in general, you know, is this going to be good for the administration of the law. Is this going to lead to a functioning and administrable legal system? And uh, it kind of reminds me of a, of a law professor I had my first year. He used to always say, you know, the key to framing a legal theory is, you know, what's good for America? 
And, uh, you know, I think that can't be the only thing you ask if you want to win, because uh, you do have to convince the court that you have textual hooks for your argument and that, you know, that this is sound as a jurisprudential matter. But I, I do think it's an important question to ask. Um, and I think I've appreciated that a little more as, as I've sort of developed, you know, as a Supreme Court lawyer. You know, for, for the mechanical change, um, I think it's really just one thing. And I, it's, I treat moots pretty differently now than I used to. It used to be a lot about practice. It was sort of getting comfortable, you know, trying not to look silly, like in front of, you know, the, your generous colleagues who are spending the time to read your briefs and ask you questions. Um, I look at it more now about kind of gathering information. Uh, I'm, you're sort of testing themes to see if they resonate and especially just sort of finding out what some brilliant colleagues, you know, what they think about the case. Like they've now read the case cold. They've read the briefs. They've thought about it. You know, what persuaded them? What didn't persuade them? You know, where were they skeptical? And, you know, especially kind of what kind of questions did they ask? The goal in, in argument prep in some ways is to hear every question at least once before you show up to the court. And moots are just absolutely invaluable for that. And so I, I kind of look at moots now more for, for those objectives than I did before, which is kind of getting kind of getting comfortable just sort of standing on your feet and, and talking out loud. So let's back up in time chronologically. Uh, tell us a little bit about your first oral argument. Boy, I, I hate thinking back to my first oral argument. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, 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 it's inevitable. I, I do it myself, you know, late at night, uh, you know, occasionally. You know, so it's a case called Midland Funding versus Johnson. It had a, a really interesting issue that sort of was at the intersection of consumer protection laws and the bankruptcy code. And so the substance of it was uh, debt collectors were buying time-barred debts, you know, normally for pennies on the dollar. And then they'd submit these claims in these Chapter 13 bankruptcies knowing they were time-barred. Um, but they also knew that no one would likely object because, you know, the debtors often had no idea what a limitations period is or what it means or how to use it. And the trustees were normally too busy to monitor everything. So the question presented was whether that practice of submitting these claims that you know should lose, but you also know will accidentally win, whether that violated the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act um, and whether the bankruptcy code precluded uh, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act um, because it does have a process for submitting claims and adjudicating claims. So we kind of knew it would be an uphill battle because uh, a majority of the court is pretty skeptical about the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. You know, it's a great law. It does a lot of good, um, but it's also misused, unfortunately, I think by some segments of the plaintiff's bar, you know, who filed kind of frivolous claims based on, oh, this receipt had, you know, one too many digits of your zip code listed. And so therefore it violated our, you know, our, our collection rights. And so we knew the court would be a little reluctant to arm plaintiff's lawyers with kind of a new tool to create mischief. And, and that is in fact what happened. It was close. We lost five to three. But we, we did lose, you know, and as for the experience, I, I definitely was a little more nervous that day than usual. You know, you're there in the court and it's just this magnificent place. And, you know, the justices, you know, to me are like legal celebrities. I mean, I assume it's kind of, you know, for most people, it's kind of like walking to a baseball stadium and, you know, you run into like Aaron Judge, like Mike Trout and a bunch of all stars, you know, and then they start asking you questions. So it was, you know, it was both exciting and exhilarating, but, you know, there, there definitely were a little more nerves that day, I'd say, than, than I have today. So you already talked a little bit about your preparation in, in the sense of what you try to accomplish with Moot Court and how that has changed. Tell us a little bit more about your preparation. How many Moot Courts do you do? You know, anything else that, that you think helps you to prepare? Sure. You know, for, for me, I think our whole argument prep actually starts with the briefing. 
um, you know, the, the justices are, are brilliant. And, you know, inevitably, in every single argument, someone is going to ask you the very hardest question about your case. It's they're going to find the softest spot, they're going to find the weakest point that you have, and they are going to drill into it. So for me, yeah, I sort of think forward to the argument and, you know, you have to keep, you know, devising and amending and modifying your kind of your core theory and adjusting your legal framing uh, until you can answer that hardest question. Uh, but, uh, but then for the actual prep, um, you know, I usually start one to two weeks out. You know, you always hope for uninterrupted time, but you just rarely ever get it. Um, I had an argument last term where we unfortunately, we had a client who had an, an emergency issue at the circuit level. And uh, we, the court ordered us, I think, on a Friday to file a reply to our stay motion on a Monday, which was also the Monday of the argument. So I finished a mood on Friday and then whipped out the, the reply brief that night. Um, you know, sometimes it just happens. But for, for the actual prep, I try to sort of, you know, reread the briefs, reread the cases, reread the statutes, you know, go through the record. Then I normally, you know, reread again, you know, the briefs and kind of single out the really key material, whether they're the cases, the statutes, until you, you really know them well. Um, but most of it is just spending a lot of time thinking through just the key substantive points. You know, the, the court is so active, you might only get, you know, one or two sentences out before someone has shifted to a different topic. So a lot of, I think a lot of the effort is prioritizing your answers and thinking, you know, if I have this question on this category, you know, what are the two or three things I really want to get out? And what is the thing that's most important to make sure I say it first? And for me personally, I don't script anything. I find it, it just distracts me because then I'm trying to think back to remember sort of what I wrote instead of just sort of reacting. I like to think just about the substance of it. And I feel like you can then be a little more responsive to the actual questions because, you know, you're not trying to you know fit any preset answer into a box. You're just really listening closely to like, what is the justice asking and why are they asking this? What's sort of the underlying, you know, problem or concern that's motivating that question? And then aside from that, I kind of do, I do a couple things. Uh, I take notes on an iPhone, kind of open up a different uh, note, you know, document, I guess, for every case. And then every time I think of a question, I sort of jot it down. So it's kind of the, it's, I guess, a slightly more modern way of doing the old, you know, note card approach just to make sure you have the questions and you can think through, you know, at any time when you're thinking about it, your phone's normally with you. And so, you know, if you get some inspiration, you can jot it down and it's there. I like taking walks around the court in the Capitol. I find that it just kind of helps to be away from the computer and to kind of be alone in your thoughts and just think through the issues. And I find that if there's kind of a naughty question or a hard hypo that you're having trouble kind of finding that perfect answer, I normally do it, you know, on a walk. And aside from that, you know, I do moots. Uh, I try to do two to four moots for every argument. Um, I think two is kind of the minimum. Uh, four, I think, is almost a little excessive, but I've been pretty fortunate to work with some different law school clinics, like uh, Stuart Banner at UCLA, and there's a terrific group at, at UT Law Schools with their Supreme Court clinic. Um, and they're normally very generous in volunteering their time. And, uh, you know, to, to turn down a moot uh, where you have, you know, brilliant people looking at the briefs and asking you questions, I just feel like is, is not a good idea. But I try not to do more than four just because it takes up time and you can become a little stale uh, with it. The last thing I do is I, I talk to the, about the case with my wife. She's not a lawyer, but she's absolutely brilliant. I find it amazing that normally within three to five minutes of describing the case, she has put her finger on the key part of the case. And so to be able to explain it to someone who's not a lawyer, although at this point, she probably has like a pseudo law degree from <laughs> suffering from listening to me so often, you know, that really helps with just 
making sure you fully understand the issues. Because if you can't explain it to someone who really has not heard of that, that area before, you don't really understand it yourself. But that's, a, that's more or less what I do. So let's zero in on your sort of opening statement, for lack of a better word. And we are going to start by playing the opening argument in Siegel versus Fitzgerald, which was a case that you argued recently. Fitzgerald, Mr. Geyser. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The 2017 Act's quarterly fee increase presents a clear and obvious violation of the Bankruptcy Clause's uniformity requirement. Congress arbitrarily divided the country into two different groups and then authorized different fees for identically situated problems justifying this non-uniform treatment. The division is entirely artificial. There is nothing unique about North Carolina or Alabama that justifies a separate bankruptcy system with its own special lower fees. Congress has simply decided to treat the same class of debtors differently because their bankruptcies arose in, say, Virginia instead of North Carolina. Because the 2017 law is not uniform on its face, it violates the Constitution, and this Court should reverse. I welcome the Court's question. These days, how do you structure your opening statements knowing that you're not going to be interrupted for the first few minutes? You know, I, I think I'm in the minority about this in that um, I, I do not like scripted intros. Uh, to, the way I look at it, we have 30 minutes with the court. You know, this is our chance to convince any justices who might be skeptical and might disagree. I hate using up that time with an intro, especially where if I've done my job, you know, I've already said what I want to say in the briefs. And it's especially true when you're topside. I mean, I often find when I'm sitting down to write my intro, it's like I've already sort of written the reply as sort of the opening to the argument. You've tried to summarize the case down to its essence and really provide that key roadmap uh, so the court knows, you know, why you're right and why they should rule for you. And even when you're bottom side, um, sometimes it can be helpful if especially if the petitioner came up with something sort of brand new in the reply and you haven't had a chance then to address it sort of uninterrupted to the court. But even there, you know, I normally would rather sort of pick up the conversation, uh, you know, where where it stands after the, you know, the first half of the argument. And so you kind of hate to to interrupt the flow if there've been there's been a lot of focus on some key points and said talk about something else. So uh, I think I'm actually when the court started this practice, you know, I think at first it was for a minute, then they gave the two minutes. I think I was the first person to waive the opening argument. And I, I cleared it with, uh, you know, with the clerk in advance because uh, I wanted to make sure it wouldn't offend anyone. And they said, yep, that's fine. And so I started out by saying, you know, I, I waived my opening, you know, but, but would otherwise say this. And it, almost immediately the chief cut me off and he said something like, you know, like, well, if, if you're not going to take your time, we're not just going to sit here. And it was it was really funny and everyone laughed. And then I think sort of uncharacteristically for the chief, he kind of stumbled for the question that he wanted to ask, because I think he thought of the joke before he thought of the question. But, you know, he recovered immediately and asked a terrific question. Uh, but uh, but knowing that, you know, the court generally, you do have to come up with some opening, especially when you're topside. You know, I, I just I think I do what most people do. Uh, I'm either thinking, depending on the case, on sort of the key themes or the key theories, um, just something you really want to underscore to make sure that it's like the court fully understands this is what we really care about and why we really win. Um, then add sort of a hint of signposting. Uh, just so that if there are certain areas I'd like to touch in the argument, that's sort of, you know, we're, we're giving the court that heads up uh, so they, they know where it's going. Do you have any morning of the argument traditions in terms of getting ready, like first thing in the morning, music, breakfast, anything? 
You know, it, it sort of, I mean, for I, I'm a night owl. And so the, you know, the, for me, especially coming from Colorado and, uh, you know, I normally am staying up late. It's kind of early for me. So first I normally set about three alarms uh, <laughs> to make sure I don't sleep through the, the argument, which is always a fear, you know, it's not going to happen, but it's kind of that, that irrational, right. you know, it's that, that nightmare dream where it's like, you wake up at 11 and everyone's like, where are you? Uh, but, uh, Aside from that, I, I usually eat the same thing and sort of drink the same thing. You know, I normally have kind of oatmeal and a banana because I find that that kind of wakes me up and kind of keeps me full for the argument. So I'm not too hungry by the end. I normally have a, you know, a mocha while I'm having, you know, the, the food. And then I normally get a Pepsi Max and I, not to advertise for Pepsi, but uh, Pepsi Max actually is more caffeine than Diet Coke and like Coke Zero and stuff like that. And normally I'm drinking it and on the courthouse steps, I sort of, you know, try to finish uh, it, hoping that the caffeine will keep me going, uh, especially when you're second up, uh, you know, through the morning. Um, and aside from that, you know, I just try to reread the briefs, um, you know, reread the, the notes I've taken on my iPhone um, and just kind of think through the key points and, you know, just do your best to kind of then enjoy the privilege of getting to show up at the court, and, you know, do an argument. You've got several endorsement deals going here. I think you've got the iPhone deal. Yeah. You've got the Pepsi Max deal. I've never actually heard of Pepsi Max, I guess, because I'm a Coke Zero person. Well, I, I like Coke Zero too, but you should you should try it. If you ever really need an extra boost, okay. I, I highly recommend Pepsi Max. Sometimes it's hard to find, but, uh, but normally you can find it somewhere uh, around the court. What do you take up to the lectern with you? So, uh, you know, not much. Uh, I, I normally take up a manila folder um, and sort of I get uh, I get pieces of paper that I tape down to each side of it um, just to make sure that they don't kind of fly everywhere. You know, if you if you kind of brush it up against something on, on the folder, the only thing I have is I have the intro scripted out and that's it. I, I find that if I put anything else there, it sort of is distracting. You kind of you know something is there. It's almost like a crutch. And then you're not focusing as much as I think you need to on the questions. And by the time you've gotten to the argument, you know, you, you either know what you're going to say or you don't. Um, and, and you absolutely should know. So I, I find writing anything down is just sort of unnecessary. The only other thing I bring up is especially cases that, that are statutory cases where the language really matters. I always have a printout of the statutes that I have separately. So just in case a justice says, you know, what about if subsection, you know, A3, Romanet, I, you know, it's like you, you, you can actually have it right there and see exactly what the language is um, and not worry about memorizing it. What do you do when you have someone, a justice, whose vote probably isn't in play or definitely isn't in play, and that person is just peppering you with questions? You, you know, I, I kind of like the hostile questions. Um, I mean, for me, it's kind of like, here we go. Like, you know, this is your chance to convince the court. Um, and normally, uh, I mean, maybe this is a personal fault, but I always kind of feel like through reason and logic, you should be able to convince everyone. And if you're right, like I want to convince them that I'm right, but, but you know, realistically you can't, um, but I still think it's useful to sort of to engage and take on those questions directly. Um, you know, that justice's concerns aren't going away by the time, you know, you've left the building. And so this is your chance to kind of show the other members of the court that that justice, you know, their, their views aren't quite right and that you do have answers to those hardest questions. Um, you know, sometimes you will get a justice who sort of is, is coming back to the same point again and again, um, really to drill it in and it's taking up too much time. Um, when that happens, I feel like you kind of just have to do the usual transition and shift to something else. You know, it can be, you know, even if we disagree on that, we still win because of this. 
or, you know, I understand that that, that you might not be persuaded by what I've just said on this point, but maybe I can persuade you on something else. And you can normally shift the conversation uh, elsewhere. Um, and I find it's normally, you know, the, the justices are, they, they're so good and so savvy and, and they're, they're not trying to monopolize your time and kind of hijack your argument. And so I think once uh, I've found generally, once you do that, they've made their point and they get it and they want to be respectful of their colleagues time so that they get to ask their questions too. Do you ever get a question that's just like way out of left field? Because you talked about how during the moot courts, you want to try and cover basically every possible question and that sometimes the justices will come up with the, the hard questions. But have you ever had one of these just like, oh my gosh, I, I did not anticipate this at all kind of questions? You know, I, it, that doesn't happen very often. You know, at the Supreme Court, I can't think of a time where it's really happened. There are often, you know, variations of questions or sort of different hypotheticals or, you know, they're, they're testing kind of the limits of your theory in different ways and maybe in a way that no one has, has mentioned before. But normally I find if you really understand your core theory, I kind of look at it as sort of you filter every question through that core theory. And part of that is you've thought about the limits to the argument. You've thought about the implications of the argument. You kind of know what bright line you can cross and what you can't cross um, that will create problems. And you know, then you just have to do your best to think on your feet uh, and, and make sure that whatever answer you're giving isn't going to create problems you know, going, going somewhere else. I have had some circuit level arguments where I've had justices just ask absolutely bizarre off the wall fact questions. And, you know, if you don't know a fact question, you, the, the first thing you need to do is make sure you, you say you don't know the answer to that because you don't want to guess and give the court wrong information. But I often find it's easy to think quickly, why are they asking this question? And you can say, well, I don't know that, but I do know this. And then you can sort of answer the, you know, what you think is really driving uh, the question, even if you don't know exactly what, what, what you would say uh, to give them a, a definitive response to what they've actually, you know, asked you. Is there a particular kind of question that you think is the hardest one to answer? Gosh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I think there, I guess, two different kind of categories. I mean, one is the just deciding how do you answer the hardest parts of your case? And so that's not hard during the argument, because at that point, you've thought it through and you know what you're going to say. And when you get that question, it's almost kind of a relief because you're like, ah, we get to talk about this. And I've thought about this. And, you know, this is a chance to let, let's see if I can convince the court or not. So it's, it's hard to, to formulate it in advance, but it's not as hard during the argument. You know, during the argument itself, I, I think the hardest ones are probably the ones that are really carefully testing the implications of your position. You know, like, where do you draw the line? You know, what are these hypothetical applications in other cases? You know, how will this affect the next case? You know, those ones are ones you, know, you try to be prepared for and to think through, you know, what are the kind of different iterations of, of questions and hypotheticals that can kind of test the limits of our theory? You know, every once in a while, justice really will come up with a clever way to put it. And, you know, if you haven't thought of that precise hypothetical, you know, it can, it can be a challenge. But again, if you kind of go back to your core theory and you kind of think quickly on, you know, what, what, what is our position? Where can we give? Where can we not give? You can normally come up with the answer. I'm going to play your rebuttal at the opening part of your rebuttal in Siegel versus Fitzgerald. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Geyser, rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. 
Uh, my friend talks a lot about what Congress intended and expected and might have hoped, uh, but this Court normally looks at what Congress actually wrote in the statute. And my friend says that may doesn't mean shall. Uh, it doesn't. And, in fact, Congress used the word may in contrast to the word shall in the very interlocking provision that they were dealing with and then followed it up in A7 with the next sentence that uses the word shall twice. This Court doesn't presume that Congress uses different words in the same statute. Generally, I guess, what are you trying to accomplish? With your rebuttal, so I I think a few different things. Um, normally, do, during the you know the bottom side argument, I'm sort of taking notes and just trying to see what are the key points. Where do I think, you know, my friend on the other side has sort of scored a key point with the court, or where have they said something that I think is important to our theory but is wrong, and no one has sort of called them out on it. And when there's about two or three minutes left of the argument. I normally then start to quickly sort of make notes, like circling the points that I want to make out of all the points I've sort of jotted down during the argument. And if you have time to even prioritize, like, which of those points do you really want to try to make first, just in case you run out of time? Uh, you know, you always have a general sense of how much time is left, but, you know, you're, you're not looking at a stopwatch. So you, you are sort of guessing and every once in a while you, you can guess wrong and either finish a little early or a little late. You ideally don't want to finish late and miss out a key point. But generally, I'm just trying to think of what are the, the points that are most important to our case, I think, might convince someone that seems you know, open to being convinced on that question. Um, if you can come up with one of those where you can also show you're definitely right. I mean, I've heard uh, you know, the, the Chief Justice, I think, said back when he was arguing, he used to always look for like that one point that's just the, the clear you know, home run. It's just like, you are absolutely right. It is unassailable. The other side is wrong. And I, I think that's terrific advice. So I, I try to do that only if I think it actually is really material to, to the case. And it's always great to say, you know, my, my opponent was wrong about this. Uh, but if it's sort of like, well, that's great. No one cares. You know, you're not going to, you're not using your rebuttal time well. So I, I just try to prioritize this, the key, the key points where I think I can actually do something that's not just repeating myself from the opening or in the briefs, but pointing out where, you know, the, the respondent said something that, that I think is wrong, um, but that no one really pointed out why it was wrong, just kind of arm that court with, with that material. Last, uh, but certainly not least, what advice would you give to somebody who's arguing at the court for the first time? So, uh, you know, I, I think there, there are a lot of things someone can do, you know, and some of this depends on just sort of the level of experience of someone arguing. You know, sometimes you have you know, amazingly, you know, talented lawyers who have argued, you know, dozens and dozens of cases in other courts, you know, often they've maybe clerked for the Supreme Court, you know, they, they kind of know what to expect. Then there are other people who I think, you know, aren't real appellate lawyers, haven't really gone through the process much, and aren't very familiar with the U.S. Supreme Court and how it's kind of is a little bit different from other courts in terms of its perspective and what it cares about. The advice is a little bit different, you know, depending on what group you're, you're you know, addressing. For the group that's that's a little less experienced in front of the U.S. Supreme Court with appellate work generally, I mean, I think moot courts are absolutely key because that's going to be your chance to hopefully have, you know, moots at places like Georgetown, where they're going to bring into some unbelievable advocates who will be able to tell you if you're, you know, you, you are either on the right track or you are not on the right track. And they will. <laughs> <laughs> and they will. And it's terrific that they do. And, you know, I've, I've never understood why, you know, every once in a while you see at a moot someone comes in uh, and they're very defensive and kind of, you know, almost resistant to the panel. It's like the panel is your friend. Like they are trying to help you when they give you these advice. It doesn't mean that you need to, you know, follow everything that the, the panel suggests, but 
you know, they, they are trying to be helpful. And so I think moot courts are essential. I think listening to past audio of oral arguments, I mean, we're, we're so lucky that all the arguments are right there on the Supreme Court website or on, on the OIA website. And it gives a great sense of just like the cadence and the pace of the arguments and types of questions that the justices ask. You can really see kind of what normally motivates different justices. And, you know, these aren't fact-based issues. Uh, you know, you get sometimes people are like, well, I, I know the facts of the case like better than anyone. And it's like, well, the, the court doesn't care about the facts of your case. They barely care about your case. They just care about the legal rule that they need to decide. Your case is the excuse for it to be there. And so I, I think just listening to the, the past arguments, doing moot courts, um, just understanding the process, I think it is just a, a huge help. And aside from that, I would just say, you know, don't forget to enjoy the process. You know, it is a huge honor, uh, you know, to appear before the court and kind of participate in some very small, limited way in what the court is doing. Um, you know, for every case I get, I always think this could be my last case. It is not easy to get cases before the court. Uh, so if you're if you're fortunate enough to be there, you know, your our main goal is always to you know advance the client's interests and, and win for the client. I mean, we're not doing this for our own amusement. But you can do that and at the same time sort of, you know, smell the roses and realize like this is an incredible opportunity and just a tremendous honor and just, uh, you know, not to forget to, to enjoy, you know, the process while you're doing it. All right. I'm off to go look for some Pepsi Max. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Dan Geyser, thanks so much. It's great to talk to you. No, thank you. It's, it's been a lot of fun. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. This episode was produced and edited by Elena Erskine with help from James Ramoser and Angie Goh.